Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I analyze a novel that I point to as an example of King's most prolific year that saw him publish a serial novel once a month for a period of six months and finish it off with the release of two full-length novels on the same day. The two novels are mirror images of each other, recognizable in some ways, but utterly different, as if two writers had a similar idea, but completely different writing styles and approaches that took the story in different directions. The novel that I'm reviewing right now is actually not by Stephen King, but instead a found manuscript of the late author Richard Bachman, author of The Long Walk, The Running Man, and Thinner. Thankfully, this manuscript was found by his widow, who brought it to all of us. Coincidentally enough, it turns out that Stephen King was simultaneously writing a very similar novel that managed to find a release on the exact same day. For those of you who don't know, in the 1980s, Stephen King had a pseudonym by the name of Richard Bachman, an alter ego that wound up inspiring the events of 1989's The Dark Half. The existence of Richard Bachman had come about when King was told that he couldn't publish more than one book a year. This, combined with his desire to explore if he could get books published under a different name, caused him to write a series of novels under the Richard Bachman persona. The Bachman books were very much the antithesis of the King novel, where King largely focused on the belief that people are ultimately good and can overcome all obstacles, usually a supernatural threat, when they embrace each other. Bachman explored the worst aspects of humanity in stories that were very unsupernatural, until he released Thinner, which would mark his last entry as Richard Bachman, until the 1996 release of The Regulators, that is. If you listen to my reviews of Insomnia, The Green Mile, and Desperation, you'll know that I found this stretch of King's career his most imaginative. In 1996, from March through August, we were treated to King's monthly installment of The Green Mile, and in September, we witnessed the dual release of The Regulators and Desperation. Seeing the two hardcovers back-to-back was an incredible sight. And for those of you who don't know, if you put the two books together, they form a single picture, fitting as the two novels are different versions of the same story. So let's talk about that for a minute. On the same day, King released two versions of the same story, but at no point did I feel like I was being robbed or cheated. Though both novels include the same characters, the events are drific, I'm sorry, drastically different, and it's another example at the level of imagination that King is operating on here. When the novels came out, I went straight to desperation. Why desperation and not the regulators? I've asked myself that question time and time again. Part of it was because of the name, for sure. The fact that the novel was named after a town with a dark secret, I was hooked. Maybe it was because it was a longer novel. Remember, my first novel was It, which was over a thousand pages, and I had fallen in love with The Stand and Insomnia, long books. So for me, at that point, I equated longer novels with quality. So because Desperation was longer, I thought that it would be better. And the third reason is probably because I just preferred Stephen King over Richard Bachman. So all of the reasons made me read Desperation before The Regulators. And I loved Desperation. I loved the town. I loved that interpretation of the characters. I loved the China Pit and the villain, Tack. So when I closed that book and opened The Regulators, I immediately missed how King had written the characters in Desperation. So upon first reading, I disliked The Regulators 
because it wasn't desperation, which is not the way that you should approach a work of art. About 10 years later, I went back, I reread The Regulators, and with some time apart, it felt like I was reading it for the first time without the baggage of the preference of desperation, and I found myself falling madly in love with it. This novel, The Regulators, is sheer insanity. It's a surreal, action-packed nightmare in the suburbs, and the imagery contained within the novel is some of the most vivid in any of either King or Bachman's works. The image of the regulator's vans rolling down the hill is an image that will never leave me, and it's just one of many scenes that I would love to see translated to the big screen. When movies like The Langoliers have been adapted, it's a downright travesty that no one has picked up the rights to the regulators. This is the most visual novel that King has ever written, a unique take on the suburbs, which is a departure for him as he usually writes about small towns. Life in the Burbs presents a similar yet different experience, and he captures it perfectly here. What if your suburban street transformed into a surreal western nightmare world as you were attacked by a hybridization of a futuristic cartoon and an old Hollywood cowboy picture? This would be an incredible experience to watch. As reality melts around the neighborhood, tell me that wouldn't make for a vivid and enthralling cinematic experience. This is a review that I've been dying to get to, so let's get to it. But, but, before I get any further, I want to share a listener email, uh, this one from James. Hi, Constant Reader. I was eagerly anticipating your entry on the stand, as it's my favorite novel and was my gateway to King. Listening to your chapter synopses is a great way to revisit the novel in condensed form and, of course, makes me want to reread it yet again. A couple of thoughts on the miniseries. With a few reservations, I'm extremely enthusiastic about it, and I'm not even sure the upcoming feature can best it, the dream casting of McConaughey notwithstanding. Nothing against Jamie Sheridan, but casting him as Flag was disastrous, and Molly Ringwald and Corin Nemec were not my idea of Franny and Harold. Also, an unfortunate decision to combine Rita and Nadine, as most fans would agree. But otherwise, I thought the casting, Ray Walston, yeah, scope and score were terrific, and I was relieved it was as faithful as it was. An amusing side note, in 2004, I was invited to a cast and crew screening of a film a friend was starring in called The Almost Guys. Shawnee Smith, who played Julie Laurie, had a supporting role. After the screen, I saw Bill Fagerbake give her a warm greeting in the lobby and thought, how cool. They probably stayed friends after the stand and support each other's careers, like seeing Tom and Julie in an alternate universe. So, James, thanks for writing in. Um, I, I just, I love sharing just thoughts like this. So if you have um, any thoughts out there that you want to share, um, Feel free to uh, to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, now what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. The story takes place in the fictional town of Wentworth, Ohio, a typical suburban community. On Poplar Street, an autistic boy named Seth has gained the power to control reality through the help of a being known as Tack. Soon, Poplar Street begins to change shape, transforming from a quiet suburb into a Wild West caricature based on what Seth has seen on his television. Meanwhile, the other residents of the street are being attacked by the many beings that Seth's imagination is creating 
due to tax control over them. These residents are forced to work together to stop Tack and Seth from completely transforming the world around them and stop Tack before he kills anyone else. Seth's imagination is heavily influenced by a western called The Regulators and a cartoon called Motocops 2200. The novel contains excerpts and scripts from both. Analysis. The novel begins with a note from Charles Verrill explaining how he's managed to publish a book from a supposed dead man. Remember that Richard Bachman has, in the eyes of the public, died. I love how King continues to play him up as a separate person. It just makes the reading experience that much more fun. And then we get a child's drawing of the map of Poplar Street, showing us exactly where all of our characters are located in, rela in relation to each other. You turn the page, and Bachman still hasn't begun to tell his tale. Rather, we get a postcard from Audrey's brother, Seth's father, revealing that they've taken a family trip to Nevada and that Seth has had a breakthrough. This will not be touched upon for quite some time, but this is the ominous beginning to the horror that will soon unleash itself upon Poplar Street. Bachman begins with an incredible description of summer in the suburbs. Now, this might not be what you think of when you think of beach reads, but now that I'm rereading it, this is the perfect, perfect summer book. I'm going to read the opening and tell me that you don't feel like you're on Poplar Street yourself. Summer's here. Not just summer either, not this year, but the apotheosis of summer, the avatar of summer. High green, perfect central Ohio, Ohio summer dead smash in the middle of July, white sun glaring out of that fabled Levi's sky, the sound of kids hollering back and forth through the bare street woods at the top of the hill, the tink of little league bats from the ball field on the other side of the woods, the sound of power mowers, the sound of muscle cars out on Highway 19, the sound of roller blades on the cement sidewalks and smooth macadam of Poplar Street, the sound of radios, Cleveland Indians baseball competing with Tina Turner belting out Nutbush city limits, the one that goes 25 is the speed limit, motorcycles not allowed in it, and surrounding everything like an auditory edging of lace, the soothing silky hiss of lawn sprinklers. Summer in Wentworth, Ohio, oh boy, can you dig it. Summer here on Poplar Street, which runs straight through the middle of that fabled American dream with the smell of hot dogs in the air and a few burst paper remains of 4th of July firecrackers still lying here and there in the gutters. It's been a hot July, a perfect good old God blue ribbon geezer of a July, no doubt about it. But if you want to know the truth, it's also been a dry July with no water but the occasional flipped spray of a hose to stir those last shreds of Chinese paper from where they lie. That may change today. There's an occasional rumble of thunder from the west, and those watching the Weather Channel, there's plenty of cable TV on Poplar Street, you bet, know that thunderstorms are expected later on. Maybe even a tornado, although that's unlikely. Meantime, though, it's all watermelon and Kool-Aid and foul tips off the end of the bat. It's all the summer you ever wanted, and more here in the center of the United States of America. Life as good as you ever dreamed it could be, with Chevrolets parked in driveways and steaks in refrigerator meat drawers waiting to be slapped on the barbecue in the backyard come evening, and will there be apple pie to follow? What do you think? This is the land of green lawns and carefully tended flower beds. This is the kingdom of Ohio, where the kids wear their hats turned around backwards and their strappy tank tops hang down over their baggy shorts and their great big galooty sneakers all seem to bear the Nike swoosh. 
From there, we start to meet our cast. Um, first being the brother and sister, Ralph and Ellie, and then Cynthia, the new store clerk, Brad and Belinda Josephine, Carrie Ripton, the paper boy, uh, Johnny Marinville, Gary and Marielle Sodersons, the Carvers. And once we meet our principal players, two things happen at once. The first, Carrie spots a van, followed immediately by the ghostly introduction of Audrey Weiler, hiding within the shadows of her home, half naked. Though Carrie, I'm sorry, through Carrie, we learn of her creepy nephew Seth, her husband's death, and the fact that their neighbors moved away around the same time. Now we recognize Audrey and Seth from the postcard that kicked off the story. We then meet Mr. Jackson, Hannibal the dog, the Reed twins, and their girlfriends. The brief unsettling moment with Audrey doesn't stop Seth on his bike. I'm sorry, doesn't stop Corey on his bike. The fact that he continues shows where she lives in relation to the other characters on the street. The creepiness, just a symbolic rumble of thunder on the otherwise sunny day, like Carrie mentioned to Mr. Jackson. When he tries to get the frisbee out of Hannibal's mouth to impress the cute redhead, he thinks, when has a little fantasy ever hurt a kid before? This has to be knowing, has to be a knowing line written with a devilish grin as everything that occurs within this book is a result of the fantasy of a kid. Bachman reminds us of the red van which has begun to move down the hill. The chapter ends with the Poplar Street residents noticing its strangeness and provides the cliffhanger of the strangely colored shotguns sticking through an open window. Chapter two. It's the same van according to a news clipping that killed Seth's parents the act which leaves Seth to be cared for by Audrey. It's a good time to note that the buildup so far is very reminiscent of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone entries, specifically, I would say, the monsters are due on Maple Street. As the events unfold, the novel will invoke other famous Twilight Zones episode. Uh, specifically, it's a good life <clears throat> in which a young boy with godlike powers subjects everyone around him to whatever hellish whims pass through his head. Steve Ames spots the van and is filled with a horrible sensation in the seconds before he witnesses Carrie blown off his bike. From here, Bachman provides us multiple perspectives of the street residents reacting to the van, each one with different levels of perspectives, some being able to see more than others, some seeing it all, and others simply confused and concerned from the sensation of dread that begins to build up within the street. It's here when we meet Kali Atragian, which is a treat for readers who first read Desperation. Uh, so I can't... I guess with Atragian, he's our villain, right? Um, at least he is at first. Uh, he's the source of our horror, and here he brings a calm presence, managing to provide order to the first, uh, after the first attack. And it's just great because the other characters that we see in The Regulators, we see their corresponding character in... Um, desperation and so we have a, a, a basis to form a compare and a contrast but we never really get to see Kali Atragian as a human being because when we first meet him in desperation he's really just tack using the form of Kali Atragian so here it really is a treat to see him as an actual person chapter three is it wrong to get excited with the coming of the regulators I mean, we've already seen the red van, and because Bachman has included the newspaper clipping about the red van that has gunned down Seth's parents, we're led to believe that the red van and only the red van is the threat. But when chapter three begins, we realize how wrong we are. 
Bachman lets us know that there's also a blue van and a yellow one, each one styled differently from each other, and they're making their way to Poplar Street. Thunderclouds begin to replace the once blue summer sky, and as the residents reel in shock from the first death, Johnny Marinville begins to become overcome with a feeling of dread. What happens to Johnny inside his house sets the stage for the type of supernatural threat that's about to unleash upon the street. He calls 911 and is greeted by a mocking voice, and when he tries it again, he hears the stuffy breathing of a child with a cold, who tells him not to call anymore. Tack! Not only is the idea that he called 911 and received this threatening child on the other end disturbing, but the inclusion of that word tack on the end of that sentence adds to the strangeness. With the clues that Bachman has given us so far, it shouldn't be hard for the reader to discern from the voice on the, that the voice on the other end is Seth, who was the subject of the novel with the postcard, whose parents were gunned down by the red van, and who was living with Audrey, who was described as being creepy. So we're less than 100 pages in with enough to point us in the direction of this particular character. And though things are about to get weird, Bachman reminds us about the casualties so far and the stakes of the upcoming conflict. He writes, Peter thought of the way Carrie had laughed when he, Peter, had told him that the next year it would be his turn to howl at shortstop and felt a sudden pain in his stomach, the organ, not the heart, as poets had always claimed most attuned to humankind's tender emotions. Suddenly, it was all perfectly real to him. Carrie Ripton wasn't going to be the Wentworth Hawks starting shortstop, shortstop next summer. Carrie Ripton wasn't going to swing through the back door tonight asking what was for supper. Carrie Ripton had flown off to Never Never Land, leaving his shadow behind. He was one of the Lost Boys now. After Trajan attempts to call 911 only to get a voice that Marinville would have recognized, Bachman lets us know that more gunfire has been unleashed on Poplar Street. Chapter 3 ends with the introduction to the adulterous Mary Jackson who was unexpectedly rear-ended by the yellow van. Chapter 4. At this point, I think the reader can discern that Seth has something to do with the strangeness occurring on Poplar Street. However, I don't think that the reader can easily determine what that has to do with the clippings that begin Chapter 4, which describes the vans that we've seen, except now that we see the vans are from the cartoon Motocops 2200, a show whose characters, Colonel Hendry, Snake Hunter, Bounty, Major Pike, Rudy the Robot, and Cassandra Stiles ride around in their power wagons. Marinville watches the yellow van... Uh, attack Mary Jackson's car as the rains start to come. And Bachman writes, Johnny can see another van, this one with scoop sides and metal flake blue paint. It comes looming out of the storm like the snout of a prehistoric beast, the rain running in rivers down the steep polarized windshield on which no wipers move. And he continues on page 92. Then the windshield of the blue van goes down, slides down, yes. That steep windshield slides into the front of the van like the front of a glass elevator, and behind it is darkness. And in the darkness, there are ghosts. Ghosts. Yes. Two of them. Surely they must be ghosts. They are, being as brightly, they, they are beings as brightly gray as fog-shrouded landscapes just before the sun burns its way through. The one behind the wheel is wearing a Confederate States of America uniform. Johnny is sure, almost sure of this, but it is not human. Beneath its pinned-backed cavalry hat is a bulging forehead, weird, almost 
almond-shaped eyes, and a mouth that pulses out from its face like a fleshy horn. Its companion, although also a bright and illusory gray, is at least looks human. He wears a buckskin's trapper's t-shirt, I'm sorry, a buckskin trapper's shirt with a bandolier belt across it. His face is stubbled with what might be a week's growth of beard. The bristles look very black against the unnatural silver of his skin. He is standing, this fellow, and his hands, and in his hands is a heavy double-barreled shotgun. Trapper John raises it. As Johnny watches, leaning out into a teeming, streaming world full of colors he does not in the slightest share, and he is grinning, lips drawn back to reveal a mouth full of tangled teeth, which would have clearly never known a dentist's ministrations. This dreamlike creature looks to be something like from a horror movie about inbred cretins living far back in some swamp. So I've said before that the regulators never gets the love that I feel it deserves from the Stephen King community. We aren't even at page 100, and King, or rather Bachman, has created an incredibly detailed setting with wonderful imagery. The storm, the vans, and now the strange, ghostly monsters piloting the vans, the power wagons, create a vivid painting within the mind of the reader. The van then guns down David Carver and the street reacts to the two most recent deaths. To make matters worse, lightning strikes one of the houses, and then more vans begin to show up, except now that because we know they are from a cartoon, Bachman can allow his other characters to acknowledge this, in this case, Ralphie. On page 102. He's standing in the Carver doorway with Ralphie still in his arms. Ralphie, Johnny sees, has reverted to thumb-sucking, and Ralphie is the only one besides Johnny himself who is, who still isn't looking at the burning house. He's looking up the hill, and now Johnny sees his eyes widen. He takes his thumb out of his mouth, and before he begins to shriek in terror, Johnny hears two clear words, and again, they seem hauntingly, maddeningly familiar like words he heard in a dream. Dream floater, the boy says. And then, as if the words were some sort of magical incantation, his waxy, unnatural lipness departs. He begins to scream in fear and to twist in young Jim Reed's arms. Jim is caught by surprise and drops the boy who lands on his ass. This mutt hurts like a bastard, Johnny thinks, heading in that direction without even thinking about it. But the kid shows no sign of pain, only fear. His bulging eyes are still staring up the street as he begins paddling frantically with his feet, sliding back into the house on his bottom. Johnny, now standing on the edge of the Carver driveway, turns to look and sees two more vans swinging around the corner from Bear Street. The one in the lead is candy pink and so streamlined it looks to Johnny like a giant good and plenty with polarized windows. On the roof is a radar dish in the shape of a valentine heart. Under the circumstances, it might look cute, but now it only looks bizarre. Curved aerodynamic shapes protrude on either side of the good and plenty van. They look like lateral fins or maybe even stubby wings. Behind this vehicle, which may or may not be called Dream Floater, comes a long black vehicle with bulging, dark-tinted windshield and a toadstool-shaped housing, also black, on the roof. This ebony nightmare is chased with zigzag bolts of chrome that look barely disguised Nazi SS insignia. The vehicles begin to pick up their speed, their engines purring with a humming, cyclic bent. 
a large porthole rises arises open on the left side of the pink vehicle and on top of the black van which looks like a hearse trying to transform itself into a locomotive the sides of the toadstool slide back revealing two figures with shotguns one is a bearded human being he like the alien driving the blue van appears to be wearing the tags and tatters of a civil war uniform the thing beside him is wearing another sort of uniform altogether black high collared dress with silver buttons and with the black and chrome van, there's something Nazi-ish about his uniform, but this isn't what catches Johnny's eyes and freezes his vocal cords, so he is at first unable to cry a warning. Above the high collar, there seems to be only darkness. He has no face, Johnny thinks, in the second before the creature in the pink van and the dead black one open fire. He has no face, that thing has no face at all. It occurs to Johnny Marinville, who sees everything, that he might have died, that this might be hell. Again, the reason that I, I, I've been reading these excerpts is because the concepts here are just insane and so much fun. Chapter 5 begins with an extended letter from Audrey to a friend detailing the death of her brother and Seth's autism. The letter reminds us of the postcard that Audrey had received about Seth's breakthrough, which isn't visible to Audrey. It's clear that something is wrong, that something has occurred in Desperation, Nevada, and that Seth is the center of whatever it is, with the mention of glass flying off the shelves and toys seemingly appearing out of nowhere. It's starting to become evident that Seth does not have any control over reality. Then after another attack, we finally check in with Audrey, who confirms our suspicions about Seth. It wasn't Seth, though, not really. Not the Seth who had sometimes, in the early days, hugged them and given them brief open-mouth open kisses that felt like bursting soap bubbles. I, owlboy, he would occasionally say while sitting in the special chair, words rising out of his usual unintelligible babble and making them feel however fleetingly that they were getting somewhere. I'm a cowboy. That Seth had been sweet, lovable, not just in spite of his autism but partly because of it. That Seth had also been a medium, however, like contaminated blood which simultaneously nourishes a virus and transports it. The virus, vampire, was tack. A little gift from the great American desert. According to Bill, the Guerin family had never turned back to desperation, had never stopped to investigate what was behind the bulwark of Earth they had seen from the road, the bulwark that had excited Seth enough for him to briefly transcend his usual gabble and speak in clear English. We really couldn't do that odd, Bill had said. I wanted to be sure of getting to Carson City by dark. But Bill had lied. She knew because of a letter he'd gotten from a man named Alan Symes. Symes, a geologist engineer for something called the Deep Earth Mining Corporation, had seen the Guerin family on, on July 24th of 1994, the same day Audrey's brother had sent her the exuberant postcard. Symes had assured her that nothing very interesting had happened, that he had simply taken the Guerins to the edge of the open pit mine. Actually going in would have been against MSHA regulations, his letter said, and had given them a little history lecture before sending them on their way again. It was a good story, both boring and plausible. Audrey couldn't have questioned a word of it under ordinary circumstances, but she knew something Mr. Allen Symes of Desperation Nevada had not, that Bill had denied stopping at all. 
Bill said they had simply hurried on their merry way because he wanted to be sure of getting to Carson City by dark. And if Bill had lied, wasn't it possible, even likely, that Symes had also lied? Lied about what? Lied about what? Stop, Daddy, go back. Seth wants to see a mountain. Why did you lie to me, Bill? That was a question she thought she could answer. Bill had lied because Seth had made him lie. She thought that Seth had probably been standing right there by the phone during the conversation with Bill, watching the creature it no longer regarded as its father with mud-brown eyes that belonged under a log in some swamp. Bill had been allowed to say only what Tack wanted him to say, like a person who speaks with a gun pointed at his head. He had told his clumsy lies and laughed his unnatural cocktail party laugh, ha, ha, ha. The thing in Seth had eventually eaten Herb alive and now was trying to eat her, but she was apparently different from Herb in one crucial way. She had a place to go. She had discovered it perhaps by accident, perhaps with help from Seth, the real Seth, and she could only pray that Tack would never discover what she was doing or where she was going. That monster would never follow her to her sanctuary. So Audrey has an imaginary place of escape from Tack, where she is able to visualize herself in a park she had spent time with um, a friend long ago. And Bachman is able to ground the larger-than-life concept with some descriptions that allow the abstract to remain concrete. In the park, she has a red child's phone called the Tack phone, and she knows that if it ever rings, he has found her. Whenever the phone is gone from her dreamscape, Tack has retreated from Seth's consciousness. It's here where Bachman reveals Tack's weakness, that he doesn't enjoy the experience of going to the bathroom, a trait that Audrey will later exploit. Bachman reveals a disturbing aspect of Tack's imprisonment of Audrey, that there's a sexual component to her captivity. The fact that Tack resides within her nine-year-old nephew makes it so disturbing. Bachman is incredibly effective at revealing the horrific and squalid conditions her life has devolved into. She comes out of the safe place of her mind to discover the carnage on Poplar Street. The surrealness starts to take hold as Marinville listens for the warble of police sirens, hearing only thunder and rain instead. There's no way that the police wouldn't respond immediately to a situation like this. The drumming sound of the rain in this case is isolating and lonely. Immediately after, Johnny finds one of the fired bullets, which, as Bachman writes, looks like a child's drawing of a bullet, which is exactly what it is. As I've been reading, I've been thinking about previous Bachman books and how this doesn't fit in tonally. First, it's much more imaginative than the rest of Bachman's works. But with Marielle Soderson's dangling arm, I sense Bachman at work. The scene that I'm talking about is when they are holed up inside one of the houses. Uh, they're, they're trying to, to save this one particular woman, and the scene is just her with her arm dangling off, and she's yelling at everyone. It's just it's gruesome in its hilarity. She seems almost unfazed that her arm is dangling off, and she struggles with everyone causing the arm to finally fall off. And the scene goes on forever, and it's intentionally comedic. It works on one level to add to a heightened level of chaos, but works just as well to allow us to laugh at the ridiculousness of this scene and tells us that we can have a good time with this story. Chapter 6. 
The interlude in between chapter 5 and 6 is fun. It's an excerpt from one of the Motocops 2200 scripts. It gives us an insight into the relationships between these characters, which is a fun inclusion to make the regulators seem that much more real. We cut back to Audrey's horror story in which Tack punishes her for attempting to leave in a scene that is difficult to read and one that is written with sexual overtones that makes Tack's punishment that much more disturbing. Basically, Tack forces Audrey to swallow mouthful after mouthful of honey until she's choking on it. Admittedly, uh, you know, I mean, it's an original and interesting form of punishment, but still, like I said, it's really disturbing. The two groups of survivors attempt to make sense of the situation, trying to rationalize why the street is deserted, why they can't hear the approach of sirens, or more disturbingly, why they see tumbleweed in the backyard. Johnny then spots the vans returning to the corridor formation, foreshadowed by the Motocops episode that we've been treated to. The regulators return to cause more havoc while Audrey watches in horror as Poplar Street begins to transform around her. Marinville sees a toy that happens to match one of the van's drivers and his bad feeling turns to worse. Outside, Peter Jackson, racked with grief, watches as the world explodes all around him and Bachman centers the surreal carnage with very real and everyday sensation of just having returned from work. On the lawn of old Doc's house, Peter Jackson stands with his wife in his arms, woundless at the center of the firestorm. He sees the vans with their dark glass and futuristic contours. He sees the shotgun barrels, their muzzles belching fire. And between the silvery one and the red one, he can see Gary Soderson's old sob burning in the Soderson driveway. None of it makes much of an impression on him. He is thinking about how he just got home from work. That seems like a very big deal for him, to him for some reason. He thinks he will begin every account of this terrible afternoon. It has not occurred to him that he may not survive the terrible afternoon, at least not yet, by saying, I just got home from work. This phrase has already become a kind of magical structure inside his head, a bridge back to the sane and orderly world which he assumed only an hour ago was his by right and would be for years and decades to come. I just got home from work. You know, it just becomes his mantra as he encounters the regulators and then he's taken to the Weiler house. He can't make sense of what's happening around him, but he can make sense of having just come home from work. It's as if his life has been divided into two parts, life at work and life after work. His routine and what, you know, it's his routine, right? And what better characterizes the suburbs than routine? It has been fundamentally altered here. I'm sure that he has a series of little daily habits that he goes through when coming home from work and those habits are as now blown to bits as his wife and his mind can't comprehend what's occurring on the macro or micro level. And talking about changes, the residents start to recognize changes on the street. Houses have transformed into log cabins, adobe haciendas, and the easy stop bike rack has transformed into a hitching post. A huge unnatural buzzard begins feeding on the corpses that populate the street. A bird that is described in more detail as being completely unnatural with different sized wingspans and looking more like a child's drawing of a mix between a bald eagle and a vulture. The interlude between chapter 7 and 8 consists of one of Audrey's diary entries detailing the growing horror of living with Seth and as Tack begins to take more and more control of the boy. 
Chapter 8. Before heading off with the Reed twins to find help, Johnny acts on a hunch and talks to Ralphie Carver about his motocop toy. And by the end of the conversation, Johnny has a better understanding of what's occurring. Peter Jackson, now under the command of Tack, is ordered to head into the Greenbelt, which is exactly where Marinville, the Reeds, and Atragian and Steve Ames are headed. The interlude between Chapter 8 and Chapter 9 includes an excerpt from the script of The Regulators, the actual movie, not the book that we're reading. Chapter 9. As Steve and Collie head into the path to find help, they discover that time is not running normally. A dark red sunset has covered the land, which now includes cacti, along with the more appropriate vegetation for Ohio. And like the vulture, the cacti just doesn't look real. They encounter a dead man stuck to one of the cacti, and the path opens up to a strange nightmare world, and this is where the novel goes there. It's one thing for the supernatural threat to come to you. It's another thing to be dragged into the supernatural threat. He writes, beginning on page 276 of the paper of the uh, hardcover edition, he looked to the east, tending fork of the path, the one that was supposed to lead them out onto Anderson Avenue and help. It ran on for about 10 yards and then opened like the mouth of a funnel into a nightmare desert world. That it bore no resemblance to Ohio made no impression on Steve Ames for the simple reason that it bore no resemblance to any landscape he had ever seen in his life or glimpsed in his dreams. Beyond the last few sane green trees was a broad expanse of whitish hardpan running towards a troubled horizon of sawtooth mountain peaks. They had no shading or texture, no folds or outcrops of valley. They were the dead black Crayola mountains of a child. The path didn't disappear but widened out, became a kind of cartoon road. There was a half-buried wagon wheel on the left. Beyond it was a stony ravine filled with shadows. On the right was a sign, black letters on bleached white board. To the Ponderosa, it said. The signpost was topped with a cow skull as misshapen as the cacti. Beyond the sign, the road ran straight to the horizon in an artificially diminishing perspective that made Steve think of movie posters for close encounters of the third kind. There were already stars in the sky above the mountains, impossible stars that were much too big. They didn't seem to twinkle, but to blink on and off like Christmas tree lights. The howls rose again, this time not a trio or a quartet, but a whole choir. Not from the foothills, there were no foothills. Just flat white desert, green blobs of cactus, the road, the ravine, and in the distance, the shark tooth necklace of the mountains. Kali whispered, what in God's name is this? Before Steve could reply, some child's mind, he would have said, given the chance. A low growl came from the ravine. To Steve, it sounded almost like the idol of a powerful boat engine. Then two green eyes opened in the shadows, and he took a step back, his mouth drying. He lifted the, uh, the Mossberg, but his hands felt like blocks of wood, and the gun looked puny, useless. The eyes, they floated like comic strip eyes in a dark room, looked the size of goddamn footballs, and he didn't think he wanted to see how big the animal that went with them might be. Can we kill it, he asked. If it comes at us, do you think? Look around you, Kali interrupted. Look what's happening. He did. The green world was retreating from them and the desert was advancing. 
The foliage under their feet first became pallid, as if something had sucked all the sap out of it, then disappeared as the bark, moist earth bleached and granulated. Beads. That's what he had been thinking a few moments ago, that the topsoil had been replaced by this weird, round, bead-like stuff. To his right, one of the scrubby cheese trees suddenly plumped out. This was accompanied by the sound you get when you stick your finger in your cheek and then pop it. The tree's whitish trunk turned green and grew spines. Its branches melted together, the color in the leaves seeming to spread and blur as they became cactus arms. You know, I think it might be time to beat a retreat here. Steve didn't bother to reply. He talked with his feet instead. A moment later, and they were both running back along the path towards the place where they had stepped onto it. At first, Steve thought only about not getting poked in the eye by a branch, running into a drift of brambles, or going past the discarded AA batteries, which is where they'd want to turn dead west and head for Billingsen's gate. Then he heard the coughing growl again, and everything else faded into insignificance. It was close. The green-eyed creature from the ravine was following them. Hell, chasing them and gaining. Audrey, meanwhile, in the refuge world inside her mind, realizes that she just hasn't imagined an escape for herself, but that Seth has tapped into the powers that exist within him that Tack has been exploiting in order to create a safe haven. The Tack phone begins ringing, and when she picks it up, it's Seth himself urging her to wake up and run across the street to the others. On the trail, Johnny, Dave, and Jim collide with Steve and Collie with disastrous results. As Collie and Steve flee from the monster that chased them, they come across the reeds and Johnny and Jim holding the gun, um, sorry, and Jim holding the gun immediately fires, killing a Trajan, and the survivors are left to handle the nightmare on their own. The interlude between chapters is another entry in Audra's, Audrey's diary explaining how one of the neighbors had taken the dream floater that caused a hellish existence for Audrey and her husband and concludes with a journal entry confirming the death of her husband who had been sucked dry by Tack. The characters are successful in shooting the interpretation of the mountain lion who doesn't have blood but more along the lines of stuffing and Jim, the reed twin who'd inadvertently shot Collie, shoots himself. It's a chaotic scene that thankfully doesn't end with another death. The group manages to head back, and Peter, who had joined them, stays behind only to impale himself on the cacti in another incredible visual description. On page 339, he looked south. His remaining eyesight was almost gone, but there was enough left for him to see the perfectly round moon rising between the fangs of the black Crayola Mountains. It was as silver as the back of an old-time pocket watch, and upon it was the smiling, one-eyed, winked face of Mr. Moon from a child's book of Mother Goose Rhymes. Only this version of Mr. Moon appeared to be wearing a cowboy hat. Hello, friend, Peter said to it, and settled back further against the cactus. He did not feel the exaggerated spines that punctured his lungs or the first trickles of blood that seeped out of his grinning mouth. He was with his friend. He was with his friend, and now everything was all right. They were looking at Mr. Cowpoke Moon, and everything was all right. The chapter concludes through the perspective of Tack, who begins powering up for his next go-around. The next interlude includes a confession from Alan Symes, whose transcript details the fateful moment the Garens met Tack. 
Symes comes across as a good man who wants to help this family help their child. Though we know the Garen's ultimate fate, this is a thrilling chapter, and for fans of desperation, this must feel like going home, as the Garen's chase after Seth when Seth dives into Rattlestake Number 1, a mineshaft turned tomb for 1800s Chinese workers, and whose walls are adorned with gruesome images. It's a very fun excerpt that by itself feels like a classic Stephen King short story. After the gang manages to get back over the fence, which includes a genuinely funny exchange between um, Brad and Johnny, um, Bachman sums up their situation perfectly on page 389. Brad crawled off both of them, collapsed in a heap, then rolled over on his back. He looked up at the alien stars, swollen things that blinked on and off like Christmas lights they strung over small-town main streets every year on the day after Thanksgiving. What he was looking at was no more real uh, than if he was the king of Prussia, but they were up there just the same. Yes, they were there, right over his head. And how bad was your situation when the sky itself was a part of the damned conspiracy? Bachman establishes that the monstrous projections from Seth's mind are dangerous, but also takes the time to illustrate how the survivors can be just as dangerous. Each of them pushed to their limits and are starting to bite at each other. Kim Geller lashed out with a racist remark towards Belinda, and Johnny threatens physical harm if she does it again, which she does, creating a moment where Johnny's possible reaction is more dangerous than the coyotes outside. Thankfully, Audrey steps to center stage and takes control. Audrey explains to the survivors of Poplar Street what we already know, but it's still a thrilling experience. Bachman manages to imbue the scene with a, no pun intended, desperate urgency. And Audrey, who has been the victim of a ruthless, insane, parasitic creature, demonstrates amazing strength. Audrey also expands upon Tack's origins, believing that the wall behind Rattlesnake Number 1 was a barrier beyond which Tack was imprisoned, and that Tack was draining everyone in order to recreate its home, whatever that might be. The fact that we never find out the true origins of Tack makes this so enjoyable, and what establishes Tack of one of King's great villains, a powerful entity shrouded in mystery. Chapter 12. I should note that many of the chapter headings have included a date and setting, quick descriptions that uh, were always regulated to Poplar Street with a regular, recognizable time. With chapter 12, Bachman reinforces that we're not in our world anymore. Main Street desperation is the where, regulator time is the when. The power wagons are back, and they surround the house with apocalyptic results. Just when they're going to close in for the kill, they fade, and Seth, hidden deep within the bowels of his mind, uses what power he can to call Audrey. Audrey then takes Johnny and the two of them make their way across what is now Main Street in a nightmare desperation towards the Weiler house. This would be tense enough if it wasn't for Bachman letting us know that Mrs. Reed has also left the house, but has brought the rifle with her. Meanwhile, Tack lurks within the Weiler's living room, well aware of Seth's plan, and waits to strike Audrey when she re-enters the home. Bachman cranks up the tension, bouncing between Tack's perspective, Seth's perspective, a battle of wills, a psychic game of battleship or chess, in which they keep outmaneuvering each other. Ultimately, Seth allows himself to be shot by a vengeful Cammy, and with his host body destroyed, 
Tack enters Kami, which splits under the bulk of Tack's force, but not before he threatens the survivors of Poplar Street. And even though the supernatural threat has passed, it doesn't mean that the supernatural has gone out of this world, as seen on page 464. They were almost to the street and the others when Cynthia came to a stop. Oh my God, she said in a soft, strengthless voice. Oh my God, look. Johnny turned. The storm had moved on, but there was one isolated thunderhead just west of them. It hung over downtown Columbus, connected to Ohio by a gauzy umbilicus of rain, and it made the shape of a gigantic cowboy galloping on a storm-colored stallion. The horse's grotesquely elongated snout pointed east towards the Great Lakes, its tail stretched out long towards the prairies and deserts. The cowboy appeared to have his hat in one hand, perhaps waving it in a hurrah, and as Johnny watched, the open mouth and transfixed, the man's head flickered with lightning. A ghost rider, Brad said. Holy shit, a goddamn ghost rider in the sky. Do you see it, B? Cynthia moaned through the hand she'd pressed to her mouth, looked up at the cloud shape, eyes bulging, head shaking from side to side in a useless gesture of negation. The others were looking now as well, not the firemen, not the cops, who would break out of their indecision soon and come up here to join the block party, but the Poplar Street folk who had survived the regulators. Steve took Cynthia by her thin arms and drew her gently away from Johnny. Stop it, he said. It can't hurt us. It's just a cloud and it can't hurt us. It's going away already, see? It was true. The flank of the sky horse was tearing open in some places, melting in others, letting the sun through in long, hazy rays. It was just a summer afternoon again, the very roof tree of summer, all watermelon and Kool-Aid, and foul tips off the end of the bat. The novel concludes with a letter written in 1986, a decade before the events of this novel, by a woman to her friend about the ghosts that have been spotted at a gazebo in the Catskills, which readers will recognize as Audrey's safe place. The ghosts match descriptions of Audrey and Seth, but there's an insinuation that they're not exactly ghosts, but simply living on a higher plane of existence, or what Ralph and Lois from Insomnia would describe to you as living on a higher level of the tower. It's a fun little button to end this wild ride. So now I just want to talk very briefly about the similarities and differences with desperation. Um, now, first of all, with Stephen King having, having had established the multiverse with a dark tower and the talisman, it allows both the regulators and desperation to both claim being the quote-unquote real story. They both are because each story takes place in a different universe than the other. What links the two of them is the China pit in desperation. Does that mean that there's a tack in every world? Or is there only one tack who is able to enter multiple parallel worlds through each world's China pit? I personally like to believe that one. The tack uh, is, is a villain in both novels. Um, though, I'm sorry, though tack is the villain in both novels, there are differences between the interpretation of this particular character. In The Regulators, for instance, Tack appears to be more of a vampire type of entity. Bachman shows that Tack needs to feed off the life force of those around him. Now, that could just be because Tack can survive in the body of Seth in a way that he couldn't survive in the bodies of those in desperation. 
But because his force is not being able to expand that way that it is in desperation, it needs to be fed. The relationship dynamic between the parents and children are different between the carvers in desperation to how they're portrayed in the regulators. In the regulators, Ralph and Ellie are the kids, whereas in desperation, they're the parents. David and Kirsten are the parents in the regulators and the children in desperation. King must have had fun when writing Ralph the child, who couldn't be any more different than David the child, who both have nicknames for their sisters. Of course, um, Ralph uh, has an insulting Margaret the maggot while David is an endearing pie. Um, <clears throat> so let's see, in both versions Steve and Cynthia are paired together with the phrase don't call me cookie and I won't call you cake is what brings them together. In Desperation it's Cynthia that has psychic flashes and in The Regulators it's Steve. Jim Reed is one of the teenage twins in The Regulators and the town's safety offer, officer in Desperation. Carrie Ripton is the pit foreman in Desperation. Audrey Weiler is a geologist. In the pages of The Regulators, Mary Jackson dies and Peter is abducted by Tack. In Desperation, Peter Jackson dies and Mary is abducted by Tack. And I want to talk about, about the suburbs. I've talked about it a little bit, but I just want to kind of go into a little bit more detail. The joy of this novel comes from its send-up of life in the suburbs. Now, I wouldn't call this a satire by any means, but there's definite truth in how the suburbs are presented, whether it be Audrey representing the weird neighbor, everyone's collective understanding that there's a bratty child who lives on the street, the secret names that everyone calls the Sodersons behind their back, when Johnny Marinville starts laughing hysterically when he sees the Hummel figurines in the Carver's house. So much about life in the suburbs is about privacy brushing up against a shared communal experience. So it makes perfect sense when Bachman decides to highlight this by separating our characters into two different camps, each attempting to survive in a different house. If that doesn't summarize life in the burbs, I don't know what does. I get a kick out of trying to communicate. Um, I, get a, I get a kick when they're trying to communicate with each other over the fence because that is just suburban life. At the conclusion of the novel, Bachman writes the secrets of suburbia into the moral of the story when Johnny enters Audra's house and writes, as they enter the kitchen and he looks around it, it occurs to Johnny that perhaps the good folk of Poplar Street deserve what's happening to them. She's been living like this for God knows how long and we never knew, he thinks. We are her neighbors. We all sent her flowers when her husband ate the end of his gun. Most of us went to his funeral. Johnny himself in bed, Ken, Ken, Ben in California, talking to a convention of children's librarians. But we never knew. So I want to talk about plot versus characters. Perhaps one of the reasons why King fans prefer desperation over the regulators is because desperation adheres to King's selling point of characterization over plot, whereas the regulators is very plot-driven. I think that the concept is what continues to push the story forward, not the character work. And this isn't a knock because if I want a story that focuses on the characters, I have desperation. And that isn't to say that Bachman doesn't create well-developed characters because he does. The book wouldn't work if he didn't effectively sell us on Poplar Street life. In most cases, the characters are designed specifically to make the deaths hit that much harder, and few of them go through any semblance of an arc, but they're still alive enough to make the horrific nightmare matter to the reader. Okay guys, uh, now I want to talk about autism and raising child with autism. Now, you can read Seth and his relationship with Audrey 
as the story of a woman who doesn't know how to care for her newfound son, which is something which parents of autistic children can struggle with. This isn't to say that they don't love their children, but some instances uh, along the spectrum make parenting more difficult than those with children, with parents whose children are not on the spectrum. Now, is Bachman using Tack as the personification of autism in this case? A creature that has possessed an otherwise healthy child? I don't know. I think that it's a valid interpretation. Just look at Mr. Guerin's plea to Alan Symes to see the China Pit. He'll do anything to keep the lights that have just turned on in Seth's mind going. And his conversation is similar to descriptions made by anti-vaccine folk with descriptions of the light going out of their child's eyes. At that moment, if Mr. Guerin had believed that a vaccine had caused his son's autism, he wouldn't have listened if you tried to tell them that there wasn't any scientific evidence to back it up. He'd simply believe what he felt, even if that feeling flew in the face of rationality. Similarly, he desperately wants his child to go to the China pit. Rational logic holds no sway in his mind at that point. Later, Audrey tells Johnny to sorry, later Audrey tells Johnny about how she's seen Tack leave Seth's and describes how it comes out of his eyes. More so, she describes how Tack is represented by little red dots, light leaving his eyes. Regardless of how well he captures autism, it's clear that Audrey's plight can be stripped of all supernatural menace and still feel very true. It's what makes her plight so relatable. She describes the torture of listening to the same shows over and over again, which is attributed to Tack, but is something that any parent can relate to, autism or no autism. Whether it's Seth's repeated viewings of the regulators or motocops, Audrey is being driven insane through the constant repetitions. And as Andre Linoge tells us in Storm of the Century, hell is repetition. Children with autism function well with established and manageable routines, and a break from routines can cause hell to break loose, something that's embodied when Seth loses his dream floater, and Audrey and Herb are subjected to the torturous whims of the growing power of Tack. And while the parents might not be able to relate to the supernatural aspects of their child forcing them to punch themselves or possess them, they can relate to intense moments and outbursts that can drain patience. So when Audrey thinks they can get through one incident, it means they can get through another. It feels like a very true statement. Furthermore, with the journal entries detailing the truth behind Seth's missing dream floater power wagon, it speaks to a very specific aspect of raising children, having to deal with other people's children. In an extended sequence, Bachman describes how Audrey is visited by Mr. Hobart and his son, Hugh, who comes to the door to explain that young Hugh, while advertising for their church by placing flyers door to door, found the dream floater and took it for himself. While on the surface it seems like a noble act, admitting fault and asking for forgiveness, Bachman complicates it by revealing that despite the faith they've been preaching, the forgiveness they ask for is incredibly superficial, and Audrey finds herself having to explain to the child about asking for forgiveness in its relationship with having done something wrong, an act which the boy does not feel he has committed. So all of a sudden, what could have been a simple moment, returning a toy, is now complicated through her having to teach the child a petty, pretty significant rule, while the father argues with her about his displeasure at her doing so. On top of it, Bachman writes honestly, with Audrey actively disliking the child, and after what we've seen her go through, who can blame her? 
The novel also works as a statement on a child's imagination, which isn't surprising as the magic of childhood is a concept that King has explored before in The Talisman and It. Here the idea of imagination is a source of terror rather than a power for good as the entire street is turned into taxed sandbox. And as the novel races towards its unpredictable conclusion, Bachman makes note that Seth has outgrown the motocops, signifying that his childhood and imagination is reaching its end. In this case, Tack represents the aspect of childhood that threatens the adult, the one that won't let go. Have you ever met someone who never escaped childhood? The adult that stagnates in a parent's basement, perhaps? The one whose interests froze as a teen and never matured? It's because they have their own version of Tack crawling inside of their heads, stymieing their development. Okay guys, now it's time for Kingisms, and Kingisms, for those of you who don't know, are the tricks and traits and tropes and just patterns that King will uh, repeat from book to book and story to story, and the first of which is the apotheosis of all summers. Now King has used this term on a number of occasions, most famously in the opening pages of The Gunslinger, where he stated that the desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, and in it where the last day of school was the apotheosis of all last days of school. Number two is the child with powers targeted by a supernatural force, and we have seen this before in uh, The Shining and Dr. Sleep, um, and not even opposed by a supernatural force, but just also just opposed by an external force. We've seen that before in um, Firestarter. Number three is a mental escape. Audrey has been able to construct a mental retreat to protect her from tack in the way that uh, Jonesy from Dreamcatcher is able to hide in the Tracker Brothers um, depot office. And we'll see it again with Susanna uh, in the pages of Song of Susanna when she is able to hide within the Dogen. Number four, Johnny Marinville is our writer protagonist. And as you know from many of Stephen King works, whether it be Ben Mears from Salem's Lot or Jack Torrance from The Shining or uh, uh, Jim Gardner from The Tommyknockers, Bill Denville from It, Thad Beaumont from The Dark Half, Mort Rainey from Secret Window, Secret Garden, uh, or um, Mike name Mike I can't remember I can't remember now um, the the main character from bag of bones uh, there are so many instances where the, the the main character is a writer it's gonna it's gonna bother me that the main character of bag of bones it's gonna come to me as soon as I'm done recording this I can tell you that right now mist um, the rain itself produces some creepy mist uh, in in um, in this book, which is reminiscent of The Mist. Number six, guys, evil cars. So as I am recording this, uh, I just started rereading The Dark Tower, book seven, The Dark Tower, which includes probably the car scene to end all car scenes. And this is something that Stephen King has been writing about since Carrie, that featured a very memorable car crash when Carrie took out her bullies and from there we've seen either a car crash or an evil car in many of his books and 
with the evil cars. We've seen it with um, Uncle Otto's truck. We've seen it with Christine, with from a Buick 8 here in the regulators, low men in yellow coats. Um, just the idea of a malevolent car that is almost uh, it, 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 a thinking entity is, uh, is, is really a horrifying concept and one that has stuck with King. Number seven is alcoholism and dependency. Now, thankfully, by the point of publication, King had battled and defeated his dependency demons. But it doesn't mean that he has finished writing about them. You know, just as recently as November, um, you know, this past November, uh, he was still writing about addiction with the character of Jamie from um, Revival. And here, with the regulators, it's Johnny Marinville. Number eight is vampires. King loves his vampires. He started writing about vampires with Salem's Lot, but we've seen vampires in One for the Road. We've seen vampires in Popsy and the Night Flyer, and those are your, your, your typical um, vampires. But we have also seen Ardelia Lortz from the Library Policeman. She's vampiric in, in her own way. Tack here is um, a vampire of sorts. The Little Doctors of Alluria in the Everything's Eventual short story collection um, is a different kind of uh, vampire. Uh, so just vampire Dandelo will be a vampire that we see in the final pages of the Dark Tower. So we see these vampire uh, characters again and again and again. Uh, ancient evil buried and uncovered. So the fact that Tack has long been buried in the China pit as, as, and is uncovered um, is something that also has been seen in the Tommyknockers with the alien spaceship having been uh, buried and uncovered. Number 10 is the moon. Uh, an evil, sentient moon is a concept that we've seen explored before in the pages of It when Penny My Pennywise makes Henry Bowers think that the moon is talking to him. And decades later, in the pages of Nosferatu, King's son Joe Hill will create Christmasland, a hyper-realized nightmare world very similar to Seth's world of the regulators, complete with its own smiling moon. And then there's the last Stephen Kingism is Dear Heart. And I haven't talked about this one at all, but it's one that I, I probably should make note of. Um, it's basically you will... In, in the pages of, of King's works, at some point in each of his books, one character uh, improbably calls another character dear heart as a term of endearment. And we've seen it over and over and over again. Um, I think most recently in Insomnia. And now, guys, it's time for our Easter eggs, which are the um, little shout-outs to other Stephen King's works or those connections. And the first is... Uh, Doc Billingsley has a door knocker of a St. Bernard, which has to be a reference to Cujo. I mean, Stephen King knows that he has made uh, St. Bernard's famous or infamous, whatever you want to, however you want to call it. So, I mean, the fact that the, the vet has a uh, St. Bernard knocker could be any species or any, any dog breed, but it's a St. Bernard. So that to me is very knowing. Then there's The Shining. In the final segment of the, the novel, a letter written from a woman to her friend, uh, she mentions The Shining, a novel written by Stephen King. Uh, and then we have, uh, I mean, this one isn't really a, a true Easter egg because Desperation and the Regulators are linked, but the entire, throughout the entire novel, 
TAC functioned a little bit differently from the, the, the version of TAC from Desperation, but in the concluding pages of The Regulator, he does say me him and to, which is of the language of the dead that, was, that ran throughout the entirety of Desperation. And then Cynthia herself, um, and this is more so in the page of Desperation, but if, if we're just going to say this is the same character, just two different versions of the character, this Cynthia um, is the same Cynthia from Rose Matter, which I didn't pick up on until I had reread uh, Desperation. Um, and when I was rereading Desperation, and, and I'll talk about this more in the Desperation review, but you know, when she starts talking about Norman, she actually starts talking about the actual events of Rose Matter. I completely forgot about that. So guys, that is all that I've got um, for, for the regulators. I just really want to reiterate, if you never gave the regulators a chance, or you like Desperation better, or you're not a Richard Bachman fan, please do yourself a favor and read this book. It's a very quick read. It's incredibly fun. It's probably one of Stephen King's um, most imaginative novels that he's written. It is one that just needs to be made into a movie. Um, I know that I said at the top of the, uh, the review that it hasn't been optioned. It actually has been. It, I, there's word that it might become a television show. Um, if, it's a, if it was a television, like maybe eight, eight episodes I think would be good. Um, but this is one that, that can just be done and over with very, very quickly. Uh, but it's just one that is just screaming for a cinematic or let's just say television uh, interpretation just because it is, it is so visual. And just when the, the, the van comes rolling down the hill for the first time, that red van, and I just have that image. Just, and he did such a good job at describing summer. So all the lawns are green, all the houses are, are well kept up with, and bright blue summer sky, a couple white clouds you know, in the air yellow sun shining down on us this red van comes rolling down the hill and just in my head the noise that i hear there's a there's a scene it just and i don't even know if it if it actually is the noise um i could be getting it wrong but in in uh, akira there's this low droning sound at one point and i think it's when like the the bears and the stuffed animals are coming to life um, if that type of, if there was this low droning frequency that's kind of signaling that something's wrong, it's just, it, it's just making it really come off the screen. I just think it should be made. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, story. Um, and if you haven't read it, you're doing yourself a disservice. Okay, guys, uh, make sure that you stick around um, for my next review which uh, is my journey back into Midworld to reunite with our friends uh, and their quest for the Dark Tower. And that will be the Dark Tower, book four, Wizard and Glass, which I know in the pages of the Wastelands, I said that that might be the best entry of the Dark Tower. I don't know if that's the best entry in the Dark Tower. It has strong competition from Wizard and Glass, which is an incredibly well-written novel. It is so much fun to go back in. We get a lot of information about the past, um, where Roland fell in love, and we got a better glimpse of the world before it fully moved on. 
um, before he became the man that we know him to be today. We get some shout outs, some big shout outs to some other Stephen King works out there that you'll recognize. So I'm really looking forward to next week when we launch back into uh, the ongoing view of the Dark Tower series, Wizard and Glass. All right, everyone, have a great week. Um, and may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here one week from today where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Ghost riders in the sky